Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. A warm welcome to First Move as always. I'm Julia Chatterley coming to you live this week from the World Economic Forum here in Davos, Switzerland, where once again, Ukraine is front and center. This time, it follows a shocking helicopter accident in the town of Bovary near Kyiv. Earlier today, 17 people, including the Ukrainian interior minister and at least three children are known to have lost their lives after the helicopter came down in bad weather, tragically crashing near a nursery. The death of the Ukrainian minister is the greatest blow to the country's leadership so far during the illegal war with Russia. Ukrainian President Zelensky is set to address delegates here in Davos in just a few hours' time. He's likely to discuss today's terrible developments and deliver a firm message once again that fresh military aid to his country is needed immediately. There truly is no time to waste. Reports saying Russia is massing troops for a new offensive soon. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz under intense pressure too from allies to permit the delivery of state-of-the-art battle tanks to Ukraine speaks on the main stage of the WEF later this hour ahead of crucial discussions, of course, too, on this issue on Friday. Lithuania's foreign minister is saying here in Davos too today that he's confident those tanks, which could prove crucial to Ukraine's defence, will be delivered. We'll discuss Ukraine's plight as well as the global economic and energy crisis resulting from the invasion in detail over the coming hour, too, with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, former U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry, the current U.S. Presidential Envoy on Climate Issues, and IMF Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva, as well as Finnish Prime Minister Sana Marin. Her message, there is no other alternative to Ukraine winning the war and that it will win. This year's Davos, I think, playing a crucial role in further strengthening the global economy's solidarity with Ukraine during this dark hour. And that's where I want to begin with the latest from the accident site in Brovery now. CNN's chief international correspondent Clarissa Ward is in Brovery and earlier spoke to my colleague Don Lemon. You can probably see behind me the smoldering wreckage of that kindergarten where the helicopter hit this morning, tragically killing 16 people. All nine people on board the helicopter were killed, including the interior minister, uh, Denise Ministerski, also the deputy interior minister, the secretary of state of the interior ministry, as well as six others. And then on the ground, tragically, at least three children and their parents who were just taking them to school, Don. I mean, as if this country has not been through enough tragedy and horror in this war, now you have this on top of it. Authorities are saying they don't know exactly how this happened or why this happened, but we've been talking to a lot of people in the area, and the visibility was terrible this morning. One man told us he was outside smoking a cigarette, and he could hear the crash, but he couldn't see anything because of the fog. Another woman told us that after she heard the crash, she ran down to the kindergarten and saw children being taken out of the building, some of them still literally on fire. So this is 
an absolutely horrifying attack, clearly having a big impact on so many people around here. There's been a constant stream of people laying flowers, taking a minute to come and to pay their respects. And you can see those rescue workers still going through the rubble, trying to ascertain how this happened. They've been picking out large chunks uh, of, of debris, parts of the helicopter that I think, from what we understand, sort of clipped that initial part of the kindergarten there and then crashed just over on the other side where we were earlier this morning. We saw at least four bodies covered in those gold foil blankets. But as we said, just a tragic day, 16 people dead, among them at least three children. And with a heavy heart, I have to update you that since Clarissa filed that report, the death toll for the number of children killed has now risen to four. And you can continue to follow the very latest details on that on CNN's live blog at CNN.com. Now, in the meantime, the global economy suffered a huge shock to the system, of course, too, last February when Russia launched its illegal war in Ukraine. And the after effects, including things like energy shortages, high inflation and food insecurity, are still being felt today. The World Economic Forum calls it an interconnected or polycrisis in need of a greater and coordinated global response. Now, amid all the uncertainty, the International Monetary Fund has been forced to repeatedly cut its global growth forecasts. And while no resolution to the Ukraine conflict is in sight, the fund does believe the global economy should bottom out this year, paving the way for recovery, especially as China reopens and aggressively begins courting outside investment. A big fear, of course, too, for the IMF remains what it calls trade fragmentation or fragmentation risk, a development that has the potential to severely weaken global growth. Much to discuss, as always, and I'm pleased to say IMF Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva joins us now. Managing Director, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. As I mentioned, we do have much to discuss, but I do want to begin in Ukraine and the tragedy, tragedy upon tragedy that took place today. I mourn for those who lost their lives today, for all the victims of this senseless, brutal war. Mm. I want to express my sympathy to the government of Ukraine. They lost a valuable member. I'm confident, though, they will endure. They're doing a, an incredibly good job in the most difficult circumstances. You know, I'm um, reminded, and I can see that um, once again you're choked talking about this, um, of your family. Because the last time you and I were together, we were talking about your family, who's also caught in the midst of this. How are they doing? My brother and his wife are now in Bulgaria. My brother's mother-in-law is in Kharkov. I talked to her recently. It is cold. It is dark. It is scary. And her appeal to all in the world is stand by us. And so we must. How did they feel when um, the First Lady appeared here at the World Economic Forum and what she said? It was very touching because she talked about people who are going through the most difficult challenges, about children that are lost to Ukraine for no good reason, and about the power of solidarity within Ukraine and with the international community. So it is very uplifting to listen to her. 
it reminds us of our humanity. We're going to move on um, and talk about, hopefully, glimmers of light on the economic front too. I, I know this concern still clearly about the global economy but I think when we all arrived here at the the World Economic Forum we were concerned about the forecast about what you were going to say about recession risk glimmers of light perhaps Uh, this year is going to be difficult Mm. growth will slow further but there are signs of resilience and uh, we see labor markets in the United States in Europe holding Mm. consumers spending and a chance for the Chinese economy to bottom out. Mm. If all this holds, we might see a progress in bottoming out of growth towards the end of the year. But let's remember, while inflation is trending down, it is still way, way above the target of 2%. And therefore, interest rates will remain still tight throwing some cold water of the world economy. Okay, so if I sum this up, hope with regards to China and reopening, resilience from mm-hmm. consumers in particular, but clearly inflation still a problem. Can we be optimistic enough to say that the IMF believes that we've seen the peak in of inflation and while there's still work to do to bring it down, we've seen the worst? We have seen the peak in headline inflation. Mm. We haven't quite yet seen core inflation picking, but indicators are that inflation is trending downwards. Uh, And that is a reason to celebrate that central banks got it, they needed to act, Mm. they did so in a coordinated manner, and faster than many anticipated, the sign of inflation trimming down Mm. are with us. You know, it's interesting. um, Liu He from China, of course, and it's great to have the Chinese back. Um, He caught people's attention talking about reform, development, opening up. No mention of of COVID, which is interesting. Um, uh, What did you make of that? Do you think this is sort of China in a way coming in from the cold, Mm. to to use a a very potent term here? Um, What what I can say is that the Chinese economy performed very badly in 2022. Mm. Uh, it is, for the first time in 40 years, growing slower than the average global growth. Yeah. 3% versus 3.2. Never happened before. This is a big wake-up call for China to do two things. One, take out COVID restrictions and allow the economy to function. Two, use its policy space to boost growth in the country. Of course, this is easily set not done because when you eliminate COVID restrictions in a country of 1.4 billion people where there was zero COVID, guess what happens? Bushfire, Mm. COVID spreads. So China has a a job to do, but it appears that the Chinese consumer who has been sitting on savings from the COVID period of time is saying, yay, time to go out and spend, giving a boost to growth in the country. It is going to open you up to the obvious criticism that you, the IMF, oh, they got it wrong again or they've changed their minds. Is the message here very briefly just that you're data dependent like everybody else? We are data dependent yeah. and we actually haven't changed our mind. We have said 23 is going to be difficult. What we are saying now is not as bad as we feared. 
And look, uh, we don't know how many countries would end up in recession. It looks like fewer than initially we were concerned they may be. But if you have 0.2% growth rather than minus 0.2% growth, still for hundreds of millions of people, it would feel right, uh, like recession. Uh, so buckle up. It is still a difficult year, but with signs like here in Davos, sunny shiny yes signs that towards the end of 23 we may be on an upswing yeah okay and we take it and it's a calibration we'll call it that um there's two things i want to talk about so i'm going to be brief now um the un secretary general said to me we need a business model change at the imf mm -hmm. because for things like climate finance we need to raise money fast the imf the world bank need to be able to accept that the business model has to change some part of the losses have to be borne. And that is a, a difference in, in how the shareholders have looked at this in the past. Mm. Do you agree? Not only I agree, but I can tell you we are ahead of the curve because <laughs> we have already uh, started shaping up a different business model. Yeah. We recognize that uh, climate risks are macro-critical. Also, that opportunities of the green trans transition should be available to emerging markets in developing countries. We have created a new instrument at the IMF long-term financing exactly to support that transition uh, and I'm very proud to say that the interest in the IMF being a force for good for yeah. transformation <laughs> among our members is very high I'm going to Rwanda one of the first four countries that have benefited of this new instrument. Yeah, and you should also tell me off and say, Julia, there's profit potential here as well. Let's be clear. So I'm talking <laughs> about all, all losses and be doom and gloom. Fragmentation risk as well. I mean, you're talking about, at its worst, a cost of 7% GDP. Mm. How do we stop that? How do we prevent that? Well, number one, uh, open up your eyes and uh, recognize that decisions we make and how we implement it matter. Uh, we have given a range from 0.2% yeah. to 7%. Hmm. Where we fall on this range would matter tremendously for how fast our economies grow. Uh, and therefore, policymakers have to concentrate on, yes, supply chains need to be more diversified. Yes, security of supplies matters. But do it wisely. Don't throw the baby with the bathwater. Don't go in a world in which we try to close our borders. And the result is what we produce and what we consume is costlier than before. We end, end up poorer. Yeah, competition is good. Protectionism isn't. Not so good. Yeah. Managing Director, thank you so much for your time, as always. Thank you. Big heart to you and your family, too. Thank you. Yes. Kristalina Georgieva there, the IMF Managing Director. All right, we're going to take a break. Coming up, insights into mitigating the climate change crisis. You just heard some there. Former U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry says China's doing more than you might think, but he's worried targets set by Paris really might start to slip. We've already slipped. It gets worse. Joe Biden's special envoy on climate is up next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. One of ABBA's greatest hits has now formally been adopted, well, at least by me, as the catchphrase of US climate envoy John Kerry. He told Davos, money, 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 he didn't sing it, I do, is needed to deliver a low carbon economy. He has concerns and he's voiced them many times that the world will miss crucial targets set within the Paris Climate Agreement. And of course, he too says it's essential that China is on board. I spoke to him just before the show. Take a listen. 
Secretary Kerry, yes. great to have you with us. Happy and to be with you. Thank the you. last time we spoke here, if you remember, I asked you to promise that you would keep working on a climate deal, and you said, look, you'd promise to keep working, you couldn't promise on a deal. So, firstly, congratulations. And That's it's great. so good, the Europeans, or some of them, are furious. <laughs> Well, people are a little concerned about some provisions, but yeah. I think all in all, people understand this is a game changer. Uh, the president's uh, accomplishment in getting the most historic mm. commitment to climate uh, ever is already paying dividends. And I think that uh, it's going to put people to work. It's going to push the curve of technology, and it really advances America's ability to be able to help in this uh, race uh, to do what is sane and important for all of us. Do you think the Europeans might have a point? Are you willing to negotiate? Does it sort of go a little bit beyond competitive and perhaps into protectionist territory with some of the Made in America-esque well, provisions? I, I, I certainly can see certain provisions where they interpret it that way or they feel concerned about it. But I think President Biden's uh, approach to this is to sit with our friends, work through differences where we can, but to still uh, point out to people, look, the most important thing they can do is do another bill themselves. Do We need to accelerate so much right now that, that it's not enough just to have the United States moving as it is or some other countries. We need everybody engaged in this. A sort of race to the bottom in terms of emissions. It should be a virtuous cycle, surely. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. Isn't that great? Well, I like only that. the emissions, so otherwise people, <laughs> otherwise people will think you're, you're taking us in the wrong direction. A race to the top on jobs, technology, okay. health, safety, security. But yes, let's get rid of those emissions. We have to hit, we have to hit the Paris targets of 1.5% um, limitation on, on global warming. You voiced real concern. I, I would argue frightened, actually, that we're, we're not going to hit them. Well, I'm, I'm concerned. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not frightened because we can hit them. Uh, I'm encouraged by what is happening. And I think we have an enormous opportunity in front of us. This is an incredible economic opportunity. Uh, there are benefits that can come to everybody in the world as a result of our pressing forward on new technologies, green hydrogen, battery storage that is longer, direct carbon capture, uh, carbon capture utilization storage. Who knows where we go with small modular nuclear reactors or with fusion in the, in the longer run. But all in all, this is going to wind up uh, having you know, positives for everybody. But most importantly, we will live up to the challenge the scientists have given us to avoid the worst consequences of the climate crisis. And you only avoid the worst consequences if you keep the limit to the 1.5 degrees. That's why it's so important. And unless you meet the goal by 2030 of reducing about 45%, barring some miraculous change mm. in the technology, you can't get to net zero by 2050. So everything's connected to everything, everything else. Everything slips if you miss Exactly, you slip. And right now, despite the promises of Paris, Glasgow and Sharm el-Sheikh, we are not fulfilling those promises. We're not doing enough yet to hit the target. So we're heading in the two, two and a half, rather than coming down to the 1.5. You've said, uh, I'm gonna keep quoting you, um, what's really required is money, money, money. And money I spoke, and money. Yes, like the ABBA song actually, but I won't ask you to sing it, but money, money, money. Um, I spoke to the UN Secretary General this week 
and he talked about the need ultimately for a business model change at the IMF, but primarily the World Bank, that the shareholders have to accept that this is no longer about giving money and we try and make a return. This is about loss. This is about taking the first loss to change the incentives to de-risk finance, particularly for emerging markets. The United States is the biggest shareholder. Are you on board with that concept? President Biden is committed to sensible reform of the uh, multilateral development banks. Uh, and every country I've talked to right now is encouraging us and other shareholders to come together and try to uh, effect some transformation. But we're not asking those banks to suddenly go become the riskiest financial institutions in the world. We're simply trying to point out that their job is to occasionally mitigate risk or take some risk and make it possible for the private sector right. to bring Partner. the trillions of dollars to the table necessary to affect this transition. I mean, the, the good economic reports, the UN report, others say that we have a deficit of about two and a half trillion to four and a half trillion per year for the next 30 years. That's what it takes to do this. And right now we're at less than about, a, we're somewhere around a trillion, one trillion. So we need to up the ante here. One of the best ways we could do that is to have money available that can help de-risk. Philanthropies are stepping up, they're putting some money on the table. Countries are stepping up, they're putting some public money on the table. Mm. I regret to say, you know, we've gone the other way in our country uh, because of uh, the fight in the Congress over this uh, issue. but but. In the end, uh, things are happening right now. You can feel it. CEOs. I mean, people ought to stop and ask themselves, why are the CEOs of some of the most successful and largest employers in the world, biggest companies, you have Google and Apple and Microsoft and airline, you have Salesforce, you have all these amazing companies are here, and they're pushing to move in this direction, despite the fact that we have some people in public life who still want to ignore the science, ignore the reality, and not do anything. The cost of not doing things to meet the targets the scientists have given us is far more costly than any investment in doing this now. So we need to put some money on the table. I guess the counter to that is it's easier for bigger business, perhaps, than for smaller business. But just to be very specific, and I couldn't agree more with you, but you, you talked about not excessive risk, but some additional risk. And when you take additional risk, you have to accept the responsibility and the possibility that there will be loss. Sure. Agree. Yes. That's but, fine. Yes, but just listen, to clarify. Yes. Yes. But you loss. have people who have brought amazing products to, to the market. Yeah created incredible companies and made who profits. took the risk all by themselves. Yeah, they didn't have somebody vouching for that. Mm. And in addition to that, you have a lot of folks who lost the money along the way. So uh, nobody said that it, it's going to be absolutely risk-free, but you can reduce the risk. You can do what makes it a, a, a reasonable uh, standard by which the private capital hanging back, waiting to see whether this is a good investment or not, will say, you know what, this is now de-risked sufficiently that I think it's good for us to get in here. And we could move a lot of capital, which would accelerate the rate yeah. of the transition of this uh, movement to a clean energy economy. Agree. Got to talk about China. Okay. Liu He, opening up, use words like reform, development, you know China incredibly well. They're fundamental part of the climate equation. They're a fundamental part of the global economy. Um, what did you make of it? How optimistic should we be? Well, we should be hopeful, certainly. Uh, you know, no 
the world cannot get to where we have to get to to avoid the worst consequences of the climate crisis without China mm. being there and being helpful. Now, we're engaged again in conversations with China. I'm encouraged. I think China, China is doing a lot more than people think mm. in trying to deploy renewables, manufacture the renewables. Uh, you know, we'd like to see more in terms of moving away from coal and so forth, but we have to work together. We have to work together with uh, an ability to recognize our common responsibility uh, and to come to the table and help the rest of the world. And if China and the United States can move on some of these things right now in these next months, that will make a gigantic difference. It's one of the top things that one should try to achieve because it will accelerate action by everybody else and it will facilitate that transformation. It will also help a lot of people in various parts of the world who are suspicious of what China is doing or not doing right. to see that China is there, is part of the solution, not the problem, and at least addressing the problem uh, in a very serious way, and that would help everybody. A race to the bottom there in uh, emissions, at least, nothing else. Okay, more to come. And more on today's tragic helicopter crash in Ukraine and reaction from NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. Next. Welcome back to First Move and back to our top story today. At least 14 people have lost their lives when a helicopter crashed near a kindergarten in a suburb of Kyiv. Among the dead, Ukraine's interior minister. About 25 others, too, were injured, including many children. It's still not clear what caused the crash, but we have just learned that the search and rescue missions have now ceased. President Zelensky is set to give a speech remotely to delegates here in Davos in around 90 minutes. And we'll wait to see what he has to say about this and, of course, the ongoing war. In the meantime, I spoke to NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg and he also reacted to today's tragedy. The helicopter crash uh, was a new tragedy in a country which has suffered so much during this war. And my condolences, of course, goes to all those who have lost their loved ones, their family members and friends. And it's yet another example of uh, the human cost of this war and the importance of uh, supporting Ukraine, because that's the fastest way to end the war. It's tragedy, as you say, upon tragedy. We've had representatives from Ukraine here, the First Lady, we're going to hear from the President too, talking about the need for more weaponry, more sophisticated weaponry. Everybody's talking now about the Leopold tanks in particular, whether or not Germany's on board and will provide more. What can you tell us? So first of all, the main message is that uh, if we want peace, a negotiated peace uh, that ensures that Ukraine prevails as a sovereign independent nation, then we need to provide the military support to Ukraine. Uh, because most likely this uh, war will end at the negotiating table. Uh, uh, and what we do know is that what will happen around that table totally depends on the situation on the battlefield. Uh, and therefore, uh, to have peace tomorrow, we need military support uh, to Ukraine today. And that includes uh, more advanced weapons, and therefore welcome that uh, NATO allies are stepping up. 
the United States uh, is leading the way with uh, a more advanced uh, air defense system, Patriot batteries, but also Canada, uh, uh, Germany, the Netherlands have announced more air defense. And then the United Kingdom now announced uh, heavy battle tanks and, mm -hmm. uh, and many other allies have announced uh, more armored vehicles. So, so, so allies are stepping up. We will all meet in Germany, Rammstein, on Friday in the US-led uh, support group for Ukraine to coordinate uh, uh, what we provide to Ukraine. We're going to hear from the German Chancellor today. I think everybody's hoping that we're going to get some sense of timing on those, those Leopolds. Do you think we will? Well, some allies, uh, including Poland and Lithuania, have, have made it uh, clear that they're ready to, uh, to, to deliver uh, Leopard tanks to, uh, to uh, Ukraine. Uh, and Finland, soon to become a NATO ally, said the same. Um, of course, uh, Germany has delivered a lot of uh, important military support to Ukraine with artillery, with ammunition, and also with the advanced air defense systems the Patriots had just recently announced. Uh, there is a constant dialogue between NATO allies, consultations on exactly what kind of weapons, and there is now a need for more weapons and more advanced weapons, heavier weapons, to ensure that uh, Ukraine wins and prevails as a democratic nation in Europe. The NATO Secretary General there and Richard Quest joins me. Richard, tragedy upon tragedy. It was interesting in that conversation, the NATO Secretary General turned it immediately to the point that this wouldn't have happened bar the war that was taking place. They wouldn't have been in the air. Yeah. He also then turned it to, and I turned it to, the need for more sophisticated weaponry and of course these tanks and whether Germany's on board. Right, and this is the unusual and difficult point. What is the problem? I don't mean logistical problem, getting them there and can, um, can Ukraine cope with different types of tanks and all that sort of thing. Mm. But what is the problem in getting these tanks, particularly Poland's Leopard 2 tanks, to Ukraine. And I talked to the Polish Prime Minister here uh, this morning and I said, look, he said, he says, we're waiting for Germany mm. to, to give us permission. I said, why don't you just send them? Because you know the old rule, better to ask for forgiveness than ask permission. It's not only about uh, allowing or not allowing permission or not permission. The cr critically important point is, will Germans finally, finally give their part of heavy artillery, in particular heavy and modern tanks. And this is the major question because 14 tanks on top of 250 is not the game changer. But if France and in particular Germany and some other countries gave 20, 30 tanks each, then it could make a difference for Ukraine. Yeah, it's fascinating, Richard. And, and I actually spoke to the Finnish Prime Minister about this too. And again, that the point was Germany has to step up here. And, and let's be clear to your point, and I think sort of this inbuilt degree of pacifism, Germany's come a long way compared to where they were at the beginning of this oh. war and before in providing weapons. It's just the counterpoint. We could have a conversation about this, but I don't want to move on because there are other things going on here too. And, and I do think it's important to, to pick up on a sea change. We, you and I earlier, two days it feels like, two months already. We're talking about the sort of doom and gloom on the economic front. I spoke to the IMF chief, um, Kristalina Georgieva, literally moments ago, talking about sort of recalibrating mm -hmm. their outlook and, and more positive and, and, and the signs of resilience despite the tragedy in Ukraine and, and the spillover effects. Well, this upgrading, recalibrating, let's see how far it goes. Okay. Because we've still got a bit more tightening to come. And I think what's happening is 
that it's those countries that are not as badly affected that are just being that little spark of engine. Now, the US, of course, is way up there in that sense. You know, the US, the job, it is the conundrum that no one really understands. Mm. Why is job growth still so strong, unemployment remaining so low, and the labour market so powerful? Consumer, the mighty consumer, oh. isn't it? Well, that's way to let out doubt. Yeah. All those, as long as you're around. <laughs> yeah, I'm buying them a bit of time, Richard, <laughs> and the Swiss. Um, China. China was the big one here. I don't understand it. I don't understand that speech yesterday. It, it says we're not a, he says anybody who says we're not a planned economy, that is not possible. It's exactly what they are. No mention of COVID. We're opening up. Yeah. No mention of COVID, but we're opening up reform. We're going to include development. We're not a planned economy. We can't be that. We need to support the private sector. Doesn't it sound like, look at that growth figure. Look at the concerns. Look at COVID. They've told the private sector, effectively, you're not welcome. And it doesn't work for their economy. They have to Correct. U-turn. There is a U-turn taking place here. There may well be a U-turn, but the underlying economic malaise as a result of pandemic and as a result of shutdown how much rot is in the system and this demographic number by the way that china's population is shrinking we don't know how long that's been going on do you believe that it's only just started now or has it really been several years and they're only fessing up now? The beauty of a planned economy, Richard. No, 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 we're not a planned economy. What a problem. We're not a planned economy. Fix I'm it. sorry, not a planned economy. Yeah, we're not buying that. No. We're not. We've agreed, Richard. This, mark this moment. Ugh. You don't have to be sticking around you. I've got to go and do a climate panel. I'm going to the rest of the show. Well, listen, you insist. <laughs> <laughs> Rahel, she's already in the hot seat. Oh, on, story Richard. of my we're life. Not needed. <laughs> Thank you. Richard Crest there. All right, that is it from me today. And Rahel Sullivan is going to take over and will be back for me after this break. Thank you, Rahel. And you can see my conversations with the Prime Ministers of both Spain and Finland. So don't move a muscle. Stay with CNN. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Sullivan in New York. At Davos, Spain and Finland are reiterating their support for the people of Ukraine. The Spanish Prime Minister, Pedro Sanchez, told Julia he believes Russian President Vladimir Putin has been weakened, and now it's crucial that Europe show solidarity. The price that uh, the Ukrainian people uh, in Spain is so, so high, and uh, they need to feel the solidarity and the empathy and the commitment of the whole European Union. So. Uh, we will uh, be with Ukrainian as long as it takes. And I think this is as it lasts. And I think this is crucial uh, to, to say it uh, because um, even though the implication, the economic and social implications for yeah. the whole European Union is, is uh, really important, I think it's important to keep in mind that this war is not only about territorial integrity of a third country, but also it goes against the values and principles that we are defending, which, of course, are democracy, uh, human rights, freedom, and so on and so forth. And Ukraine's First Lady, I think, echoed that sentiment yeah. here today too. Um, can Spain do more for Ukraine? Of course. I think that all uh, member uh, states, we can do more. Yeah. But uh, what we need to keep is the unity. Right. The unity in the uh, economic sanctions response against Russian autocrats, 
the humanitarian aid, mm. the military uh, uh, solidarity through the European Union instruments, but also bilaterally, and finally uh, hosting refugees in Spain, for instance, we have received so far since the beginning of the war over 150,000 refugees. Wow. And they have the same rights than any other Spaniards. So I think the, the main uh, message is to keep uni the unity and, of course, send the message that we will be there as long as it lasts. There's a dawning realisation, I think, and it's being discussed here, that no one can see a resolution. No one sees what the path here is to peace. But Do you share that fear too? I think it's important that we keep that contact even with Putin. I think I, I strongly advocate that, uh, for instance, the French government and the German government, which before the war were uh, in this uh, Normandy format, and right. they reached the uh, Minsk agreement uh, together with uh, the Russian uh, government and the Ukrainian government before the war. Do you think Putin sees that as weakness, though? No, I don't no? think so. I don't think so. I think it is important that they take that lead, uh, Chancellor Scholz and uh, President Macron, and the rest of the European Union, we go behind them. And, uh, and uh, we'll see what happens in the coming months. But uh, the, the, the message of unity, I think it's uh, very, very important, especially now, especially after we, when we see the results of the war, uh, the changes, the, the lack of a strategy that apparently Putin is uh, mm. suffering. I think it's important that we keep united and we send a message of uh, solidarity and support and backing uh, Zelensky. And Julia also spoke with the Prime Minister of Finland, Sana Marin. The nation shares a long border with Russia. The two discuss Europe's strong unity as well as Finland's bid to join NATO. Well, I think that Europe and its partners have shown incredible mm. unity and strength when we have faced these big challenges. First, the global pandemic, then the war uh, in Ukraine, Russia's brutal attack against Ukraine, and now the energy crisis that mm. we are in middle of. I think we will stay united, we will stay strong, and we need to be even more stronger. And we also need that cooperation, that partnerships with our closest uh, and trusted allies, such like United States, Canada, but also our partners in Asia, in, in the Pacific. We need more democratic countries cooperating together to facing these geopolitical challenges that we have faced. Is Ukraine winning? Because some of the discussion at least I'm having here is is the fear that there's no end in sight. And if there's no end in sight for the poor people of Ukraine in this war, then the consequences, mm. all of which, and many of which at least you just mentioned, sort of continue too. Ukraine will win the war with our support. And the clear message that we have to send is that we will support as long as it's needed. Whether it's another year, whether it's five years, whether it's 10 or 15 years, we will continue supporting Ukraine, putting more heavier sanctions against Russia, sending more and more advanced weapons in to Ukraine. And then, of course, humanitarian aid, financial aid, taking refugees from Russia, uh, from Ukraine. And we need to make sure that Ukraine will win. It will win the war uh, with our help. There's no other alternative. Can I ask about the Leopold II? Of course and you the can. decision on that? When will you make a decision? How will you make a decision? Are you waiting for others first? We need European uh, decision. Mm. Together we have to make that decision. Finland is 
is willing to participate and we need everybody on board. Uh, Ukraine needs more weapons. They need more advanced weapons. They need Leopards and they need also other kind of weapons and we need to support them. Uh, I think this decision will happen. I'm not sure when, uh, hopefully soon, that we can send also this kind of material to Ukraine. They need our help. It's also a decision for your own borders as well and part of the reason for the decision over accession to, to NATO too. The message it seems from Turkey, at least in the past few days, is, uh, well, we'll... we'll and I want to take you now back to Davos, where the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is giving a special address. Let's listen. ...toward climate neutrality. Then came February 24. Since then, Russia has been waging an imperialist war of aggression here on our doorstep in Europe. With dreadful consequences that Ukrainians are bearing more than anyone. Just today, the Secretary of the Interior and 15 others, other victims, were killed in a tragic helicopter crash. We are with their families. But the war is also having an impact on all of us. For a while, energy prices jumped to levels higher than we had ever seen before. Around the world, production costs and consumer prices exploded. Many people fear that coal and oil will make a lasting comeback all across the world. If that were to happen, the 1.5 degree target would become meaningless. Our supply chains must be adopted to new geopolitical realities. Realities that you called a messy patchwork of powers in your speech yesterday, Klaus. And over all of this hangs a sword of Damocles, the danger of a new fragmentation of the world of deglobalization and decoupling. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, this is just one part of the story of last year, just one part of the reality that we are looking at here in Davos. The other part of the story is this. Russia has already failed completely in reaching its imperialist goals. Ukraine is defending itself with great success and impressive courage. A broad international alliance led by the G7, is providing the country with financial, economic, humanitarian and military support. Germany alone made available over 12 billion euro last year, and we will continue to support Ukraine for as long as necessary. In Berlin, in Berlin at the end of October, we worked with international experts to draw up a Marshall Plan for the long-term reconstruction of Ukraine. A platform of major donors is coordinating the process and, in consultation with Ukraine, ensuring that it is well implemented. Private sector capital will play a key role here. I know that many companies in Germany and beyond are very aware of the opportunities that the Ukrainian economic miracle could offer to them particularly as the country moves toward the European Union after the end of the war. But in order for the war to end, Russia's aggression must fail. 
That is why we are continuously supplying Ukraine with large quantities of arms in close consultation with our partners. This includes air defense systems like IRIS-T or Patriot, artillery and armored infantry fighting vehicles marking a profound turning point in German foreign and security policy. And there's another part to the story of last year. Within a few months, Germany made itself completely independent from Russian gas, Russian oil, and Russian coal. We concluded new partnerships in Asia, Africa, and America, thus lessening our dependence. And so I can say that our energy supply for this winter is secure. Thanks to well-filled storage facilities, thanks to improved energy efficiency, thanks to remarkable solidarity within Europe, and thanks to the readiness of our companies and of millions of citizens to save energy. As a result, energy prices have recently seen a huge stop and drop. Our measures to reduce the burden on private citizens, companies and businesses are working. Inflation is falling slowly, thanks incidentally also to resolute moves by the central banks. Industrial production in Germany has remained stable over the past few months against all the odds. Our employment rate is at record levels and has recently increased even further. Most importantly, our transformation toward a climate-neutral economy, the fundamental task of our century, is currently taking on an entirely new dynamic. Not in spite of, but because of the Russian war and the resulting pressure on us Europeans to change. Whether you are a business leader or a climate activist, a security policy specialist or an investor, it is now crystal clear to each and every one of us that the future belongs solely to renewables. For cost reasons, for environmental reasons, for security reasons, and because in the long run renewables promise the best returns. So yes, the past year brought fundamental change for Germany and Europe. But Germany itself has fundamentally changed as well. We are resolutely pushing forward with the decarbonization of our industry. We want to be climate neutral by 2045, and at the same time we will remain a country with a strong manufacturing sector. And despite all the difficulties this past year showed us, we can and we will succeed in that. In less than seven months, we built up an entirely new import infrastructure for LNG in Wilhelmshaven. In the future, it can also be used for hydrogen. Just last Saturday, I opened our second LNG terminal within just a few weeks in Lubmin. The day after tomorrow, another terminal ship is expected to arrive at the port of Brunsbüttel. More will follow. This is not only good news for our energy security and that of our European neighbors who will be receiving gas from these terminals. Above all, it shows Germany can be flexible, we can be unbureaucratic, and we can be fast. 
I spoke of a new Deutschland Geschwindigkeit in this regard, a new German speed. We will make this German speed the benchmark also for the transformation of the economy as a whole. Your companies can hold on us to this standard. A new law mandates that the expansion of wind power, solar energy, as well as electricity and hydrogen networks now take priority. We will make available no less than 2% of our country for wind power with a minimum of red tape. We have streamlined and we are listening there to German so Chancellor Olaf Scholz addressing the World Economic Forum, spending his time exclusively example, talking about the war, initially talking about uh, the tragic helicopter crash in Ukraine, saying that we and are with their families, but then quickly pivoting to Germany's support for Ukraine in its war, saying uh, Ukraine's successful efforts at protecting itself, saying we will continue to support Ukraine for as long as necessary, and also pointing out that Germany has managed to wean itself off of Russian energy, saying it has made itself independent from Russian energy. Again, that was German Chancellor Olaf Scholz there at the World Economic Forum. And that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash Country. Max subscription required.